Hello and welcome to the Human Factor Podcast, a series of conversations discussing the topics and themes influencing the world of work today. My name is Michael Esau. I'm a global HXM advisor at SAP. And I'm Simon Humphreys. I'm a solution architect at SAP. So Simon, the episode today promises to be intriguing. Um, We're going to be discussing um, building a high performance culture and how to sustain it. I've been personally fascinated by performance for the last 20 years. And and I think for me, I'm looking forward to two things really today. I want to get the opinion of our guests, the insights from our guests, what performance really is. And, and then also, you know, what are the characteristics or ingredients or conditions or that will sustain it? You know, how, how, what does that look like? How about you? When we look at high performers, you know, we look at sport, we look at music, we look in the workplace at uh, uh, leaders, but I'm interested to see what traits and qualities uh, our guests thinks that they have and, and, and display. And, um, and very much more that you know, what differentiates them from us mere mortals uh, and how, how do they go that extra mile? What, what separates them from us? I think it promises to be a very rich conversation. So let's, uh, let's, let's see. We are absolutely delighted to welcome to the podcast on this episode, Professor Damien Hughes. Damien is an international speaker and best-selling author who combines his practical and academic background within sport, organizational development, and change psychology to help organizations and teams to create a high-performing culture. Damien is the author of eight best-selling business books, and he was also appointed as a professor of organizational psychology and change for Manchester Metropolitan University in September 2010. He's the co-host of the High Performance Podcast, an acclaimed series of interviews with elite performers from business, sport, and the arts, exploring the psychology behind sustained high performance. He has served as a member of the coaching team for England Rugby League, Scotland Rugby Union, and a wide range of international and national sporting teams. His innovative and exciting approach has been praised by Sir Richard Branson, Muhammad Ali, Sir Terry Leahy, Sir Roger Bannister, Tiger Woods, Johnny Wilkinson, and Sir Alex Ferguson. Damien, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Oh, no, the pleasure is mine. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's great to, it's great to be on. Thank you. So, Damien, to put into context, the episode that we're covering today is around building a high-performance culture, but crucially, how to sustain it. So if we just put this into context, so for many years, there have been countless studies to understand what constitutes performance. It's something that we all marvel at, whether it be on the stage in the West End or a musician at a concert or your favorite sports player performing at the top of their game. It can take our breath away. We feel inspired by it and sometimes even in awe of it. Yet. Do we understand what goes into that performance, both individually and collectively? Do we truly understand the ingredients that sustain performance? But also, do we appreciate the relativity of performance and the impact of non-performance to us as human beings? So this episode, we're going to really delve into what performance really means. But critically, what is the impact of non-performance on our engagement, our well-being and mental health? Damien has devoted so much of his career understanding the dimensions that create the performance culture. And as as we mentioned previously, has worked alongside several sporting and private sector organizations. 
So we're looking forward to getting into his mind to unearth his insights, his observations, his reflections, and hopefully a tip or two. So let's kick things off and, uh, and, and, and sort of get a bit of a scene setter, I suppose. Let, let's begin by getting an understanding of what performance means to you, Damien, whether that be singular or whether that be collective. I think, you know, for Simon and I, we're massive sport fans. It's yep. not Simon's fault whose club he supports. That's just <laughs> the way it goes. But if we can just begin, what, what does performance mean to you? I think that's a really fascinating place to start a conversation. It's a question that um, on the podcast series that you referenced, the High Performance Podcast, we open up with um, a similar question where we ask, what is high performance? And we've been fortunate to interview a whole over 75, a raft of elite performers from sport, business, and the arts. And I think the interesting thing is we haven't had one consistent response to that yet. So I think that's why I think it's such a great place that you've started this, because to try and come up with a definition is almost as, um, uh, is, is such an important place. I think having asked that question and listened to the answers from so many elite performers, I would sum it up in a 15-word summary that says do the best you can with the knowledge you have in the moment you're in. And the reason I think that, to me, is the most succinct uh, and apt uh, description of performance is because we all start, it, it, it acknowledges that we all start from different places. Talent is a prerequisite of so many different organisations, and some of us are, are blessed with more talent than others. It, it says that it's constantly evolving. So the knowledge that you have is something that you can improve on the moment that you're in. If you keep progressing, you can develop it. So it's the idea that performance isn't a static final outcome. It's something that in any moment is, is about giving your all. But when you reflect on it, acknowledging that maybe it could be better, but that means that the moment is different or the knowledge you have has changed. So... That summary of do the best you can with the moment you're in, with the knowledge you've got, is to me my summary of it. You know, when we conjure up this image of performance, it's very action orientated. Is there something also in there? Obviously, do your best, et cetera, et cetera. But is there also something in there which is innate? So uh, people want to perform. It goes almost back to their DNA, if you like. I remember a number of years ago, I was listening to somebody talking about high-performing organizations, and they used the example of the Juilliard School of Ballet in New York, which is, you know, renowned. It's a high-performing. High but what I found really interesting was that, you know, they talked there about the pupils came from all across the United States. And in their own individual little towns, they could do something that nobody else in their town could do. And then they go to the Juilliard, and they look to their left, and they look to their right, and they see people doing things that they can't do. And they talked about them growing in their sleep because there was something in, inside of them that innately just wanted to improve, wanted to perform better. Do you think that's a big factor of this as well? I think it's a really huge factor. What you're describing there in so many ways is what's been characterized in education since as, um, as growth mindset. So for anyone listening to this that go, oh, I've, I've heard this term, and, but what does it mean? It's almost where psychology is caught up with what we've intuitively always known when it comes to high performance. So the research started in the early 1990s. There was a child psychologist called Carol Dweck, who was at Carnegie University in New York. And she had this idea that 
she tested 300 children, divided them up at random, and basically put the two groups of children through two separate uh, six-week workshop programs. One group of kids were told that they had innate talent for mathematics skills and for problem solving. And that innate talent was reinforced constantly. So a bit like the kid in the small town being able to do ballet. They were constantly reinforced that they were talented at ballet, for example. The other group of kids were brought in and told that they had the propensity to work hard. And then they were given studies and, and research and evidence to prove that if you work hard at something and you reflect on it, you automatically begin to develop and improve and get better. So in some ways, the two groups were called or characterized as the ones that were told they had this innate talent were described as the fixed mindset group. It was like talent was something that you were blessed with. The other group were called the growth mindset group. They were told that talent is something that if it's nurtured and developed, it grows and improves. What was fascinating was when those two groups were then put under the same test conditions after uh, six weeks later, the different uh, responses were fascinating. So that the group that were fixed in terms of their ability, when they met ob obstacles, they just assumed that their talent didn't stretch that far. They assumed that this innate block of talent they'd been given wasn't quite enough. The other group that were told that they had the ability to grow a talent when they came up against obstacles, it was their perception that they never saw themselves as failing. They just saw it as a bit further that they had to stretch. So their ability to, per to persevere, their diligence, their ability to cope under pressure was automatically improved by the way that they perceived their ability. So when you're describing this Juilliard School of Ballet, what you see in there is the same thing, that some kids would have just got into it, looked around at all these talented other students and gone, maybe I, my talent isn't that good. Whereas the ones that would have gone, you know what, they're doing things that I can't do yet. They're using skills that I haven't quite learned. They're the ones that would inevitably, as all the research shows, continue to have this, this burning desire, this idea of this intrinsic motivation to keep working, to keep mastering a craft. Fascinating. I mean, it is evolution, isn't it? I mean, that's the, we've been talking a lot recently about that growth mindset. And many of our listeners will know Sir Alex Ferguson, Damien. And, you yeah. know, there was a recent documentary that he put out, he recorded with his son and he said, working hard is a talent. Well, I'll give you a good example of it. That when I, I, so I, I did a, a book around Ferguson and the culture that he created at Manchester United. And I know that Simon might bristle a little bit when we talk about this, but so I'll apologise soon for that. But I think what Ferguson did, there was a really fascinating example that was shared with me that when he had a crop of prodigious, talented players coming through, that are now characterised as the class of 92, people like David Beckham, Paul Scholes, Nicky Butt, the Neville brothers. One of the first things that gave Ferguson the sense that he was on to something special with them as a group was he did a really simple exercise that the players thought was a media training day. So they were brought into a room on a day and they had two local journalists from Manchester Radio interview them. And the players thought they were learning how to sort of respond to reporters' questions and to handle being in the glare of the spotlight. What they didn't realise was the questions Ferguson had given the interviewers to ask them were all about failure. They were all about their, their worst games, their biggest losses, their worst mistakes. And what he was more fascinated with was not how polished they were in front of a camera, but how they perceived those failures. 
And what was telling with them was that none of them in their interviews, and you can see the transcripts today, I've got the videos of them, none of them were looking to point the finger of blame at somebody else or to, or to suggest it wasn't their fault or it was the referee's fault. They were all taking responsibility for, I wasn't good enough, my preparation wasn't sufficient. David Beckham described in pretty pragmatic terms, he said, my arse dropped out was the actual phrase he used. And what he meant by that was I didn't cope well under pressure. What fascinated Ferguson about it was that these were guys that were owning their development and they were taking accountability for it. I need to get better. I need to improve. And these were lads that were already showing signs of being elite performers. And that was a big factor in why Ferguson took the decision to invest in youth and get rid of some older, more experienced players and give these young players the opportunity to grow within that environment. So I think it's an easy thing to say, a growth mindset and developing it, but we need evidence of it that, and a large part of it is about early, early ownership. This is one of the things that they've seen in studies. There's a psychologist called Angela Duckworth has done studies with West Point graduates in the, in the American military. And one of the first things they see is the early ownership of mistakes. I once spoke to Gary Neville, who used very casually a line about the culture at Manchester United. He said, I never once heard the term unlucky used in our dressing room. Because being unlucky transmits responsibility outside of your domain. You weren't good enough. We, did, we weren't on it today. We weren't intense enough. It means that you can do something about it. And that's the growth mindset in action in many ways. So, so building on that, then, we often hear the term, don't we, high-performance cultures or, or high-performance teams. I was very lucky to study the work that McClellan, David McClellan did at Harvard in the 1960s around motives and climate, et cetera. And, and I practiced that work for a long while. And it's interesting, on my reflection, Damien, that many people have connected climate to engagement, right? But the more I look at climate, it's actually the conditions that an individual needs to take ownership of performance or development and, and how they feel about that. What do you, so what do you see as some of the, the common sort of components or ingredients, if you like? You've, you've touched on a couple already about ownership and growth mindset, but what, what, what additionally would you add to these sort of high performance cultures or teams? Again, I think it's a really smart question you're asking. And I think the fact that you're looking at it as through the lens of, like when you talk about climate and just getting it away from engagement and thinking about it from a slightly wider lens is really astute on your part. I think, first of all, we need to define, well, what is culture? Because I think you go and ask a dozen people for a definition of culture, you'll get a dozen different definitions that come back at you. Where I direct people to is the work of Baron and Hannon from Stanford University. Did quite a seminal study in the early 1990s. These guys went to, um, uh, into Silicon Valley and looked at startups, and there was a huge proliferation of them. And they studied the different cultures that emerge. And what they found is traditionally, you'll get one of five different types. And I think that when you start the conversation by saying, what type of culture do you have? The answer of what is a high performing culture emerges by definition. So the five types of cultures that they found emerged in, in organizations are, you can have a star model, and a star model is where you just throw lots of money at it, you recruit the best talent you can, and you wait for all that talent to come together. 
Another way is you can have an autocratic model where it's about the a powerful, charismatic individual sets the tone and it's my way or the highways kind of approach. You can have a bureaucracy. And this is a culture characterized by lots of rules, regulations, policies and procedures. When decisions are made, it's like consensus via committee. You can have an engineering culture, which isn't about engineering, it's about technical expertise. People are brought in for their expertise in a certain domain. And then the fifth type of culture you have is a commitment culture. And a commitment culture has got a really clear sense of purpose at the heart of it and a really clear set of behavioural rules that determine membership and belonging. Now, what the evidence says that when Baron and Hannon studied these organisations over the next 20 years, there was one clear winner, which was a commitment culture. And on average, it tended to outperform those other four types by around 22%. So... That's where it starts us to go. Well, let's have a look at what commitment cultures are. So the composite parts of it are things like, as I said, a really clear sense of purpose. You're working on a mission, the sense of we're doing something here that is bigger than us. So it's not just about making money. It's about make it, having a sense of purpose behind it. The element that really sort of lights me up is when you talk about they have a really clear set of behavioral rules that are likely terms and conditions. And the reason that lights me up is because I see what that achieves for so many people. If you go and ask when you talk about um, in employee engagement, when does employee engagement go down? Listen to the answers. It's traditionally, you can characterize it, uh, a large part of it on two factors, transparency and consistency. I don't know what's expected of me is a lack of transparency. And the consistency is, I do know what's expected of me, but it's not applied across the board. And I think when you've got a clear sense of mission, but you've got these behaviours that say, these are the rules of membership, and these will not be compromised. This will determine how you're promoted, rewarded, recruited, and exited from our organisation. People then understand that it's transparent and consistent, and therefore it gives you a sense of stability that you can then focus on just doing the best you can with what you've got in the moment you're in. I'm going to come back to that point. I, I think that is a huge point on the question that I, I want to ask you about what happens when performance isn't there. So I just want to come on to this, the, the question about sustaining, though, for one moment, because, yeah. because there is two sides to this coin. You know, it's, it, it's all good and well that somebody in the moment performs. How do you sustain that? over a period of time. So you've talked about the growth mindset, which I think yeah. is absolutely integral, but there are so many factors that influence how somebody performs and feels, etc. So if we look through our lifetime and we've stood back in awe and looked at Federer or Nadal or LeBron James or Tiger Woods, Simon was teasing me for putting the Rolling Stones. He said, crikey, Michael, you could have Possibly, but I chose the Rolling Stones deliberately because I read a fascinating piece that before every single tour, they're in the studio, they will go over every song, and somebody once said, why on earth are you continuing to practice satisfaction? And Jagger said, because you never want to get to the point where you think you've nailed it. He said, we can always improve how we perform it. Listen, I stand in awe when I look at the LeBron James and the Tiger Woods and think about the natural talent, but the longevity. Roger Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, I mean, it's the the longevity of the way that they sustain it. What is, what is it you see in that that sustains it? I think when we talk about sustaining performance, 
we're asking about intrinsic motivation. It's not about the external rewards that the people you've just described, they're not doing it for the money. They made the money a long time ago. So making more money isn't just the central pillar of what they're, they're driven by. So I direct you to the research of, of uh, Richard Ryan and, uh, and Edward Decky on this, that these were two guys at Rochester University in the 70s that the traditional idea of motivation and sustaining high performance was throw more money at it and people will, will stick with it. And what their research found is that that wasn't the case. There's a, there's a certain level of reward you need. And then after that, it comes down to other factors. So what are those other factors? Well, they identified three, and it's referred to now as a self-determination theory. So the three factors are, first of all, you've got an element of control. It's almost an element that you decide where you do. So you're not being imposed on it. You get to choose and you apply an element of your own autonomy to this. So if you think about it, like this is hardwired into us. Think about how children, for example, want to feed themselves when they're toddlers. Think about right the way through how people choose their own uh, special numbers on a lottery, despite the odds being infinitesimally small. They're playing a game of chance, and yet people convince themselves they've got a special numbers or a lucky line and things like that. That's all our human desire, to have a sense of control and autonomy over what we're working for. So there's an element of choosing where you want to be good at something. The other thing is about having a sense of uh, belonging. You have to be surrounded by people that give you that sense of belonging, that sense. So the biggest predictor of mental health issues, say like depression, is a sense of isolation, feeling that we're on our own. So giving people a sense of belonging and being part of a culture or a community that's dedicated to self-improvement, where those re where you're being rewarded for that is really key. And then the third factor that he talks about is, so he talks about doing something where a value, where you feel that you can be authentic to yourself, where you're doing something because it just speaks to the person you are, it speaks to your innate values. Those three factors are what Decky and Ryan found a long time ago, that if you can find a job, that satisfies those three needs, you'll you'll naturally be inclined to want to work and develop and to improve on it. And I think when you describe Jagger in his response to you don't ever want to get to a place where you feel you're satisfied with satisfaction. Oh, LeBron James feeling that he, that he could do it with his eyes closed. These are guys that are looking to take it to another level of quantum, tomorrow's like that quantum leap of doing things because it speaks to that mastery, that sense of authenticity, and part of the belonging, the group that they've, the tribe that they represent. Brilliant. Uh, Simon, I just want to bring you in for just a second. Your, your thoughts on Damien's comments? Yeah, I wanted to just build on this, this concept of sustaining the, the high-performance culture, and you used the example earlier on, much as it pains me to talk about the Manchester United dressing room, but it was a great example of you know, not hearing the word, oh, that was unlucky. I mean, do, do you see any typical early warning indicators when that performance isn't being sustained? And I don't mean here that the outcome has dropped and the actual performance level has dropped, but indicators that it may drop. And that could be, for example, I was unlucky starts coming into your mindset or yep. that's good enough. Are there other sort of typical early warning indicators where you think that's an indication that sustainment might be at risk? 
Yeah, definitely. I think there's, I mean, there's lots of alarms that uh, or red flags, Simon, that can give you an indication of it. So like on an obvious level, when people start prioritizing outcome rather than process, for example. So the metaphor I often use might sound silly or crass, but it's like somebody that decides they want to go on a process of losing weight. Now, if you prioritize outcome rather than the process of losing weight, the quickest way to get there is to cut off a limb because you'll hit your weight target, but you'll cripple yourself over a long period of time. So instead, if you focus on the process of let's focus on our eating patterns, our, our, our exercise habits, it doesn't, it takes us, the process is a lot longer, but it's likely to be sustained for longer uh, if we get there. So sometimes going into organizations that prioritize, say, like uh, quarterly sales targets rather than the process. So have we hit our numbers rather than have we focused on the way that we've gone about hitting the numbers is a sign that DI can be taken off the ball when it comes to creating this kind of culture. I think other factors that you start to see are that I always think in organizations, be careful of gimmicks, gimmickry, because people see through it. But following a process can be boring. It's about doing the same thing and it's about being patient. And yet we have shorter attention spans than ever. So we look for something new, something fresh, something exciting. So we throw out an idea and a process because we've been doing it for a long time rather than seeing it as actually that's, that's a good sign. That's a healthy sign that if you feel like you've been doing it for a while, there's a consistency and a commitment to it that is really important. So when people talk to me about the process of change, I think people talk about, uh, well, how long will it take? And the answer is, well, how long is a piece of string? What I prefer to do is direct people to the roadmap and say, well, where are you on this? And the roadmap I like to use is, comes from the work of Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, for those people listening to this that might be not familiar with him, was a famous sociologist that in the early part of the 20th century traveled the world to some of the most diverse cultures asking a simple question, what unites us? And what he found as a consequence is one of the things that's common to all humanity is the way that we all experience change. And he describes it in five stages. Now, it's known traditionally as the hero's journey. Um, now, again, if people are going, well, I think I've heard of this. If you've ever watched the Star Wars film or Lord of the Rings, you know the hero's journey and the five stages that apply to change are. The first stage is the dream stage where everyone gets excited, where you, the possibilities of what could be. Then the leap stage follows it, where you then say, right, I want to do something different tomorrow than what I was doing today. So, you, so there's a sign of commitment that you're leaping to make this new stage happen. The third stage is the fight stage. This is the messy middle. This is the bit where people get despondent. You don't see results fast enough. People get bored. And this is traditionally where most changes fail. Most change initiatives fail. It's like in football clubs. How many football teams do you know that sack the manager at this stage and bring in a new guy? So they don't fix the cultural issues, but they engage in this three-step dance for decades of getting everyone excited with the new guy. People do something different. They hit the same cultural problems. So they sack the new the coach and bring a new guy in. You have to get through this stage and you have to plan for this stage to take a while. And once you get through that stage, you then see the climb stage. And this is where you see signs of progress. You see development. You see little seeds starting to blossom. 
And then that creates a degree of momentum and enthusiasm that then takes you to the fifth stage, which is the arrival bit where you, you celebrate, you take a moment to pause, reflect on what you've learned, and then you plan again. So the journey continues. But I think the bit that I see that, again, one of the warning signals is people get to the fight stage and they get bored with it. They convince themselves it's never going to work. They get disillusioned. So they throw everything out and start the process again, but don't fix the cultural issues. God, this is fascinating. On episode five, Damien, we had Harriet Green. Uh, Harriet's the ex-CEO of Thomas Cook and, and latterly at IBM. And Harriet, I worked with Harriet. I was very lucky to work with Harriet. Right. She always used to talk from a leadership standpoint about executing the basic fundamentals brilliantly day in, day yeah. out. So that it becomes a way of life rather than tasks or events or et cetera. Now, I want to just sort of link individual performance to leadership here for a moment, if I can, because I think this is a crucial topic in an organizational context, but even in a sport context. You know, I, I watched the Netflix drama, obviously, about Michael Jordan and his time with the Chicago Bulls. And, you know, you saw the influence that Phil Jackson had as a coach on these players in terms of, well, how did he create the space and the room and the conditions where these players had control, had belonging, and could see the value. So when there's a team environment, obviously the role of the leader is pretty crucial to the success of the team and that enabling culture. You know, yep. people leave bosses, they don't leave organizations as the, as the myth goes. So what's your view on the role of the leader or the coach in creating these conditions and executing the basic fundamentals? I think the best way of thinking about a leader in this regard is it's almost like the prime minister of a country. I think they're the most important individual in terms of making decisions, but they won't make or break the culture alone. So say, for example, if a, if a political leader came out and criticised, say, the travel industry, it would rock the travel industry. Share prices would dip and decline if confidence was was affected so that individual can have that effect but the travel industry isn't going to implode because the prime minister comes out and criticizes them do you see what i mean unless it's in an autocracy so i think thinking of it in that metaphor is is probably saying and i like quoting some stats to leaders when we talk about culture the stat i like to quote a double-edged sword is from a dutch economist called baz van der veel this Guy Baz van der Veel linked up with a journalist called Stefan Samansky many years ago, and they went and looked at how important is a football coach when it comes to the performance of the team. And what they found is money wins out most of the time. The richest football teams win the biggest trophies on 80% of the occasions. So what they say is that leaves 20% left over, and one of those factors is the coach. So if it be charitable and say to most leaders, your impact on the team's performance is around 10%. Yeah, that this is the way it's been modelled. If it's 10%, I like quoting that stat because for some leaders, it's a great way of bringing them down to earth to say, don't get carried away with your own importance. Don't be, don't make the same mistake the Queen does of assuming the world smells of fresh paint everywhere you go, where everybody puts on their best face when you walk in the room. So don't get carried away of thinking that you're more important than you are. But the vast majority of leaders where you quote that fact is, I like it because it gets them to sharpen their focus and say, are you maximising the 10%? Are you getting the most out of the 10% impact that you get to have? So then when leaders say, well, how do I know that? I like to quote 
I did some work at Barcelona Football Club a few years ago and I spoke to them about um, their recruitment of a head coach. And they shared with me that they'd spoken to Warren Buffett, the American investor, about the recruitment of a head coach, which is a bit of a leap of the imagination. But Buffett's advice was that the, you should view a leader through three lenses. And he felt this was just as applicable in sport as in business. The first lens is energy. Do you have the energy to do the task? Do you emanate the energy and the enthusiasm to uh, to throw yourself into it? The second lens is, do they have like the knowledge? Can they speak with confidence? Do they have like credibility there in terms of their area that they're working on? But the third factor is integrity. Do you role model the behaviors you're going to ask everybody else to adopt within your culture? Now, Buffett's advice to them was, if you've got a leader with knowledge and energy, but you've got any, even a kernel of doubt around integrity, don't employ them. Don't put them in a leadership position. Because his point is that people don't follow hypocrites. People don't follow leaders that talk a good game and don't back it up. People that tell you one thing and demonstrably do something different. So when you hear in sport a phrase that you often hear when a coach gets sacked is, they lost the dressing room. And when you go and explore, what does that mean? What you'll often find is that the leader has started to do something different that is inconsistent with what they're asking everyone else to do. And that's the moment when people suddenly start to put the brakes on and go, whoa, hang on a minute, I don't feel entirely confident following this guy because he might just lead us off the end of a cliff. We don't quite know where he's going to take us. So to answer your question, I think leaders are like the prime minister of a country. They're figureheads that wield more influence than any other individual. But that influence is still limited and therefore it needs to be focused and a large focus needs to be on integrity. Fascinating. Simon, your thoughts? I wanted to build on um, watching Netflix, actually. Uh, I, I watched a different uh, documentary on Netflix. It was called The Defiant Ones. And it was following uh, the development of the music industry and a couple of uh, producers in particular. But they were working with one particular artist and, and, and it was clear from there there was a degree of intensity in that high-performing artist. Uh, and they, they were expressing that almost their exhaustion of working with this high-performance person and their intensity. Is that something you see uh, occurring you know, elsewhere as well, that, you know, with this high performance comes that intensity and brings with it that need of overcoming exhaustion to keep up with that person? That's a fascinating question. It can do, yes. I've, I've certainly seen it. The way I would describe somebody like that is I, I think I'm not a big fan of talking in binary terms. It's either or, but I think a, a helpful way of thinking about it is that some high performers that have that level of high intensity and that that willingness to to go the extra mile to stay behind and and learn their craft and master it and encourage others the phrase i i use to describe them are these are cultural architects you put any group of people together in a room a hierarchy emerges there will be some people that, that, that emerges alphas that are leaders now if you've got these alphas that are looking to role model really healthy behaviors they're looking to encourage others. They're looking to lift the standards of everybody. They become architects. If, however, you've got alphas within that room that are their intensity burns other people, 
or they're destructive in their behaviours or they're selfish or narcissistic, I would describe them as cultural assassins because they're undermining your culture, they're creating a climate of fear that other people don't feel that they can be authentic and be themselves. So I think it's important to, to understand that that intensity can either light the candles of everybody else in the organisation or they can almost overwhelm us. They can burn down the organisation in many ways because they're not thinking of the bigger picture. I don't know if that's a helpful way of framing it, Simon, that I think understanding it through those lenses that, and then often it's about harnessing them and getting them to recognise the impact that they can have. So an assassin can be, if sometimes if you're giving them feedback and they can buy into that and see that they can actually wield a greater impact on, on the wider culture. So again, cross Netflix documentaries, if you go back to the example Michael was talking about, now these are documentaries, bear in mind, there's a drama and it's been scripted, so we only see a certain element of it. But the Michael Jordan example that you were talking about for him, he was in many ways, his intensity was destructive in many ways that when it came to having to perform as a team, he basically oversaw a star culture for many years where he was, he was the guy that took all the key shots. But when he missed or made a mistake or was injured, there was nobody else to step up. And I think what Phil Jackson did there, so to combine a few of our answers to the last question was, he got Michael Jordan to see that actually the team will always be stronger than any individual and get him to start empowering other people and encouraging and raising the standards and developing other people to step in and take the lead at certain times. So he became very much an architect of the culture uh, in Chicago. So I think sometimes it's about getting these intense individuals just to understand the power that they wield and they can use it for good or for destructive purposes. Maybe a better way of framing that is they can use it to help or they can be unhelpful if they don't wield it correctly. Damien, earlier on when we were talking about the question of what constitutes performance and you know what sustains a performance and you talked about self-determination and it's almost like a DNA in some respects, isn't it? There's almost three elements. I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm just going to sort of paraphrase a little. It's fair to say, though, then, that self-determination, though, exists in all human beings to a lesser or larger degree. So I suppose I want to now flip the coin. If you look in the press as we enter into a new state, as we come through the pandemic, as organisations reimagine what the future world of work will look like, we're now starting to read about the Great Resignation. We're starting to hear about the exodus of people leaving organisations, going to pastures new, and there'll be a plethora of reasons of why they're doing that. But I think there's no doubting that the, the absence of a growth performance culture, an engaging culture, will undoubtedly play into that. We see a lot of apathy when it comes to managing performance in organisations. Yeah. You know, we'll ask organisations, you know, how, how do you ensure clarity? How do you give timely feedback? How do you enable an individual to be evaluated fairly? How do you differentiate their reward versus the contribution of others? I'm sure you're reading it. I'm sure you're seeing it. I'm sure you've got a point of view on it. Do you see some of these factors contributing to the Great Resignation? The absence of a performance culture, you, you know, is that hurting organisations? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It has to. Jeff Bezos has a really interesting answer to this question that I that really rang a bell for me that 
that when people say to him, how is the world going to change? So if you think of this pandemic and people talk about, are we going to go to hybrid working models and thing, and the different changes that people are starting to compute? When Jeff Bezos is asked the question, what's going to be different in the next 10 years? He says, what's more helpful to ask is, what's going to stay the same? So rather than worry about what's going to change, let's have a look at what's actually going to remain the same. And for us as human beings, our evolution's not going to be that quick in the next 10 years that we're not not going to want to feel a sense of belonging. We're not not going to want to feel valued. We're not going to not want to work in an environment where we feel psychologically safe. We're not not going to want to work in a place where we get an element of control and autonomy about when we work and how we work and where we work at our best. So all those factors are still going to be there, regardless of a pandemic and what falls out of it. So the organisations that can be responsive to those needs and to give people a sense of belonging, a sense of community, we're working on something that has a wider sense of purpose. The organisations that can say to people, you know what, you might have to work from home. You can choose where you work and how you work. We're not going to micromanage you. We're just going to trust that you'll work in the environment that suits you best. The organisations that are not looking to just drive numbers and not look at process and mastery are the ones that inevitably are going to thrive on the back of this pandemic and the ones that will keep engagement and retention of their best staff. The ones that dismiss it as soft skills or see it as like a nice to have rather than an essential factor, they're the ones that I suggest are probably going to be playing catch up. Yeah, that was the view of Harriet Green. She was very clear on that also. You know, she talked about belonging, she talked about purpose, and she said the ones that don't really open their eyes to it. But this is this has been going on for years. I mean, engagement scores globally have been at their lowest for the last 10 years. I mean, why have we stopped doing the basic fundamentals? You know, well, this why- is I mean, that's a really important point. And I was gonna make it earlier that I think there's a phrase that's crept into sort of like the corporate landscape that comes from sport over the years of marginal gains. You know, the idea comes from BT cycling of doing 100 things, 1% better, and you'll get quantum loops of performance. And I can see the logic behind it, but what I'd encourage is just get the basics right. Marginal gains is for when you're already at an elite level and you're looking for small incremental improvements. But what we need to understand is we need to get these basic human needs already taken care of before we start looking at sort of little tweaks and improvements to it so you're right i think i think what harriet said to you on the the fifth episode of your podcast series is absolutely true enough and i'd suggest that you'll hear it from lots of other leaders as you as you continue this journey that you're both on it's about getting the basics right before you start looking at making these sort of small tweaks yeah no absolutely oh Fascinating, fascinating. Listen, I think we're 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 at a point in the time where Simon's <laughs> gonna gonna kill me. So I, I'm gonna ask my last question, Damien, if I can, because oh. our listeners have said that the nuggets, the tips, the wisdom—that's the bits that they 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 really love to, to to hear. You you have spent time with industry, sporting, as you mentioned, you've interviewed over 75 guests on your podcast. What would be some of those absolute nuggets? that you constantly refer to, constantly go back to, they're top of mind, and you believe are really, really helpful. What would be two or three of your biggest tips? The first one I'd start with is kindness. I think practicing kindness to yourself then opens you up to have the capacity to be kind to others. And I think 
that might sound quite a twee phrase of people might be listening to this going, is he going to suggest we do group hugs or create a culture of high fives? And that really isn't what I mean by that. I mean, kindness is about accepting fallibility. People make mistakes, but how we deal with those mistakes, including ourselves, how we deal with that allows us to reflect, to improve and come back and do it better. That is such an underrated virtue that for anyone that's thinking about going after high performance, whether this is individually or collectively, don't underestimate the power of starting by demonstrating kindness to yourself uh, is critical for that. I think another part of it is having the courage to do something different. We love the status quo. Our brains love the path of least resistance. And I think sometimes having the courage just to do one small thing differently. I know I just bemoan marginal gains, but what I'm suggesting is that just try doing one thing differently. And then when you try that, reflect on it and then do something else after that. But it's almost about have the courage just to try, even if it's a small step on the process, uh, is really important. The final one is embrace failure. Embrace failure along the way. I've yet to meet anybody that's had a linear journey to high performance. I think the amount of our high performers we've sat with that have taught, I think what's made our interview series really intriguing for me is that none of our high performers are hiding away their failures. They're not sort of denouncing it or trying to dismiss it or belittle it. They're, they're owning it and sharing it with others. I think there's a real generosity of spirit that they've done that with us. So when we interviewed, say, for example, Johnny Wilkinson, the rugby union player, he spoke so openly about the mental health challenges that he's had as a consequence of reaching the summit of his chosen career. He didn't have to do that, but he was doing it because he wanted to help others. He wanted to talk about some of those failures and those dark times to do that. And I think the more we get used to sharing those, the more we create a culture where people then have the courage to give it a go and are kind to others that have done it and maybe failed along the way. So I think they all fit into each other. It, it is interesting, isn't it, those failures? I mean, Johnny Wilkinson has always been a point of reference for me, and I also look at James Cracknell yeah. as a sort of a, a case study. Going back to that point of self-determination and control, you know, I remember Johnny Wilkinson apparently used to be in the field at the back practising his kicks. His mother would be shouting for him to come in for supper and there would be no sign. You know, he would be out there until the light would go on and it would be literally pitch black and he's still going. And Which sounds impressive. And I get that, like, we're, like we hear that and we sort of put people like that on a pedestal for being so dedicated and for persevering and things like that. But when we sat down and spoke to him, he said that was driven by an innate fear, that he had a fear of death. And he believed that when he died, he needed to be as close to perfect as possible. So there was a fear that was driving that sort of um, addictive personality that the further he went along that personality, the more it, he felt it constrained him, the more that it started to take its toll on his mental health. So I think that stories like that, like we naturally put these guys on a pedestal and idolise them for it. And I think like when we explore a little bit about the human cost of it, we realise that kindness, courage, and being willing to accept failure as part of the journey is actually allows us to be more sustainable in the way we do this. Wonderful, brilliant, absolutely tons and tons and tons of insights. 
Damien, we cannot thank you enough for for being a guest, uh, giving your time, and I'm sure our listeners will absolutely love uh, listening to all of the insights you've shared with us today. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for inviting me. I think what you're doing, what you and Simon are doing, Michael, is uh, incredible, and uh, I'm humbled to be asked to be on, and I hope that if anyone's got this far enough from listening, if they have found it useful, I'm grateful that they've invested so much time to do so. That's very kind. Thank you, Damien. Much appreciated. Thank you. Wow. What a fabulous conversation. I can't thank Damien enough for joining us today, giving us his time, and and also just the, the, the depth of his insights, the research, his reference points. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation today with Damien? I loved all the examples uh, and uh, bringing that whole topic to life with with all those different studies and those different uh, contexts. But I was really interested in that growth growth mindset that he talked about. Uh, and it's not just about having innate talent. Uh, it, it's something that we can all have in terms of you know striving to do better and recognising that you might not be good enough yet, but you can be. And I think that builds on our, our previous episode of our podcast where we, we, we talked about it's not about being best, it's about being better every day. So it's something that is achievable for everybody to to have that growth mindset rather than looking at high performers and just dismissing them almost as well they've got talent and i haven't and you know we referenced in the conversation that we had with harriet green on episode five and i think damien was building on that today about this sort of in, intrinsic motivation the feeling of having control and a sense of belonging and, and a sense of value and, and how important that is with the right behaviours, the guardrails, if you like. So my biggest takeaway uh, today, and, and I suppose it's validating, I suppose, my own thoughts and and what I've tried to practice, which is the basic fundamentals really, really matter. And you have to do them well every single day because as people, we need that. It, it's fundamental to how we perform, how we feel, and 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 also the clear set of behaviours and being consistent with them. I love the Warren Buffett example and the importance of integrity and leadership. We've talked about it for so many years, but I think again that brought that to life. And and I think that piece about authentic leadership, you know, and and, and the impact it has on whether we believe you, do we feel safe, do we trust you, do I think you've got my back, and all of these different things, you know, really came to light. But amazing insights, amazing reference points. And I hope our listeners will enjoy listening to it as much as we certainly enjoyed having the conversation. So brilliant. So that's episode eight. Um, I'm looking forward to the next one, episode nine. But for now, I suppose, Simon, I'm going to go off and have my customary cup of tea, uh, as I always do. And we will look forward to episode nine, which I believe will be on the role of the leader. But until then, thank you, Simon. And uh, goodbye. Goodbye.